Hello, it's 21st of October 2018 and this is episode 82 of Scavengers Horde, a Stars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. So how has your week in Star Wars been? And yes, I know I'm bringing that back. I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> we just need to have slightly less of a cold open. <laughs> yeah. Because I, you know, sometimes you forget, but each episode could be someone's first episode of Scavenger's Horde. Exactly. Yeah. And we don't want to go straight into some arcane challenge that people might have <laughs> no idea what that is and be like, oh, I challenge. don't want to listen to this. <laughs> the mythical challenge. <laughs> Uh, yeah my week in star wars has been good Um, Mm and i started reading the star wars adventures comics so Mm -hmm. those aren't the marvel ones they're geared towards a younger audience um more of like a cartoony style and they're by idw um because i've been really enjoying their adaptations of the force awakens and the last jedi right um yeah graphic novel versions they're a lot of fun and they're adorable so far i'm really loving them there's this really cute uh it's a Finn focused story, um, mm-hmm. but Ky- Kylo's in it as well. Aww. And um, <clears throat> Finn's trying to figure out what to do with this little animal who's like snuck onto the finalizer. Um, and somehow he ends up in like Phasma's quarters, and then wow. Kylo comes knocking on the door. <laughs> and Finn is pretending to be Phasma by like holding up her helmet and putting it around the door and like using. She's like, he's like nodding to like look like Phasma is actually listening to Kylo. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I posted the panel on Twitter because I was just like, I can't believe no one told me that this was a thing. Yeah, that's so delightful. Is there any suggestion as to why Kylo is going to Phasma's room? Because he he senses that there's an alien presence on the Destroyer. Okay, um, right. Which is obviously the creature that Finn has found and is trying to figure out what to do with. Okay. Yeah, so he goes to Phasma and is like, are you on duty? We need to figure out what this presence is. I need to get you down to the... (laughs) to the ground and figure out if the resistance is at work here oh how funny Um, (laughs) as long as it wasn't a booty call that's fine no absolutely not (laughs) oh dear um but yeah it's just really cool to see those little interactions between finn and kylo before the force awakens even happened yeah no that sounds really charming how's your week been yeah, no, it's been very good. Um, there hasn't been much Star Wars, really, because it's mm-hmm. all been about the London Film Festival for me, um, which is just ending today as we record, actually. Um, but yeah, it's been an amazing film festival. And the part that is relevant to this podcast is that yesterday I finally saw The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which is the new Terry Gilliam film. And it's relevant because it stars Adam Driver. And yeah, I've written a full review for my blog on Star Wars Nonsense. So you can go there to read my in-depth thoughts um, and the spoilery as well. So please be aware of that. Um, But yeah, just to give some brief thoughts here, I thought it was really good. I really enjoyed it. I had more fun with Don Quixote than I think I did any other film at the festival. It's just so weird and so surreal and funny. And it's just so Terry Gilliam. It's like there's a scene where a bunch of women come on and they're all veiled and then they rip off the veils to reveal that they all have immense facial hair. And I won't go into the reasons why that happens, but it's bizarre and funny and yeah, it's just charming. And it was such a pleasure to finally see it after so long because it's been in development hell literally longer than I've been alive. (laughs) So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really wonderful to see it. It was a bit surreal as well. It was like a pinch myself moment. So I felt very lucky. 
yeah i'm very happy for you that you got to see it and not at all jealous oh <laughs> hopefully you'll get your chance eventually by hook or by crook yeah. eventually maybe yeah exactly yeah if there's any justice in this world <laughs> um right and then to update briefly on the challenge so my challenge was to read lost stars the claudia gray novel and that is now challenge accomplished because i have finished reading lost stars and we're actually going to be talking about that as a focal point a bit later in this episode so that'll be exciting and then Kirsty, your challenge it went on hold a little bit this week didn't it just so that you could bring yourself up to speed on lost stars a bit for the sake of our discussion yeah well even with regards to that i wasn't able to reread the whole of lost stars and i realized that it's been almost three years since i read it for the first time wow which is kind of crazy so we'll see how i do with that discussion <laughs> you'll probably be leading it and i'll just be kind of mm, yeah interesting <laughs> no that's totally valid <laughs> Yeah, The Mad Woman in the Attic. I think we're going to do an episode in a little while um, about revisiting Rey's heroine's journey. And mm-hmm. so we'll kind of recap The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, and then we'll be using that text as a source for us kind of informing predictions and speculation about episode nine. So exactly. hopefully people can look forward to that. Yeah, definitely. It's been a long time since we've done an episode like that. And I think for the sake of that, I'll probably rewatch The Force Awakens and Last Jedi. So it has been a while, especially for Force Awakens. I've seen it within the last year, but probably coming up more to a year than, say, like six months or something, you know? So mm-hmm. it's been a long time. I'm sure you've seen the films much more recently than I have, Kirsty. I watched The Last Jedi just a few days ago, actually. I was really oh, nice for it. And yes, I enjoyed it. <laughs> Good. When did you last see Force Awakens? Uh, it's been a while, yeah. Mm. I can't yeah. remember exactly, but it'll be kind of fun to do a double bill. Yeah, definitely. I know it's embedded in our minds, basically, with both films. But it'll certainly be worth like revisiting them for the sake of something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So, then we're going to move on. There's a few tiny tidbits of news that we're going to rush through very quickly. Nothing here is super substantial, so that's why it's going to be so quick. But it's worth mentioning. Um, the first thing is that there are some new photos from the set of The Mandalorian because basically George Lucas visited for John Favreau's birthday. And yeah, Dave Filoni was there as well, right, Kirsty? Yeah, so there are two different um, photos that were posted on John Favreau's Instagram. Mm-hmm. There's one of him just with George Lucas, which I found really cute because George is like, lighting the photo with his phone from underneath but you can see his phone in the photo (laughs) that's adorable it's like he's directing it it's adorable um so he's got his classic george lucas expression (laughs) i'm sorry i love completely miserable he's he's very funny and uh i was saying on twitter i wanted to see his shoes because i'm always in the mood to see his monarchs (laughs) oh is that the brand he wears yeah, the Nike ones. Right, okay, cool. I mean, he's just wearing his classic plaid shirt and you just know what he's wearing on his feet. <laughs> so, sorry, I know this sounds weird. No, don't worry. Can you imagine if George Lucas went bald? Would we even recognise him anymore? Uh, No, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> the hair, seriously though, the hair is such a defining part of the George I know, Lucas image. Yeah. It would just be weird. He just has such a distinctive look, I love it. Yeah, he does. He, he's like he knows what he likes and he sticks to it for decades. 
He does. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. No, it's pretty sweet. So yeah, John Favreau looks very happy there. And that's a good birthday gift. And then there's another one with Dave Filoni stood in between them. And he's not wearing a cowboy hat. Yeah. That was like seeing George Lucas bold. I recognised <laughs> him. What's with all the boldo talk, Iswara, getting to you? Maybe subliminally. It wasn't like at the forefront of my mind, quite possibly. <laughs> bold George Lucas. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, serious weird scene for Loney like that. It's like, oh yeah, that's who you are, right? Maybe this is his live action hat, and then the cowboy hat is for when he's working on animation. Quite possibly, yeah. Maybe <laughs> he's growing up in that way. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's the Mandalorian news of the week, which must have been very exciting for Jon Favreau. Like, can you imagine? Yeah, um, no, that is really exciting. Do you think it yeah. indicates some level of like involvement from George at all, or interest from him in the project? Um, interest for sure. I think he's been pretty supportive um, yes. of the projects in general. We know that he visited the solo set and even had a suggestion for the direction of a Han and Kira scene. Yeah. Um, obviously, we can't know from this whether he had creative input on The Mandalorian, but I'm sure we'll hear about it at some point if he did. Yeah. Can you remember what a big deal they made out of that one little suggestion George had for Solo? They're acting, <laughs> I know. Like, they're acting like George Lucas directed a scene from Solo. <laughs> it's oh, like, yeah, whoa! It's just the way the machine works. I mean, I do think it was a cute character detail. Um, yes. And I felt like it was very in keeping with Han as a character. But yeah, um, yeah of course they exaggerate these things. And yeah. it just made me wonder, has George visited the set for nine yet? Yeah. No, exactly. I sense he perhaps keeps more of a distance from the saga films. Because uh, I he guess he went to the Last Jedi set. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, we ha- saw him on the phone to Ryan in the director and the Jedi, and um, mm, and then yeah. and he he did visit the set in 2016. So yeah, no, you're right. Like that was maybe like a false memory for me. I kind of had the idea in my head that it might be easier for him to say get involved in the spin-offs and stuff because that's less of the main story you know it's more spin-off stuff so there's not quite the same level of investment from George in terms of he had these particular ideas about how things were going to go but yeah that's probably just nonsense on my part well I think it's just that we don't know if he's had creative input on the the sequel trilogy like what when he's been visiting set but yeah. the initial ideas came from him um, yeah, that's true. People like Pablo Hidalgo have been quite emphatic, emphatic about that. So, yeah. No, he's always on about how it was about a young female Jedi seeking out Luke Skywalker, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And the whole what happened to Darth Vader's grandkids and all. Yeah, which is interesting. Uh, yeah, and then the next thing that we just want to cover briefly alludes to the spoiler section we had last time. I'd say that because of what's now happening in terms of an actor getting involved in that news, um, I don't really class it as a spoiler much anymore. But if you're very sensitive to that sort of thing, it might be worth skipping ahead by five minutes. So basically, John Boyega put up some images. It was on, was it on Instagram or Twitter, Kirsty, or both? Uh, he posted it on Instagram. Yeah, had okay. an Instagram story. So Right, yeah. So he put up a picture of a mosque and then a picture of like a party mm-hmm. um and they're both apparently related to the nine filming and someone did some detective work and figured out that the mosque is in jordan which is where we already knew that stars episode nine is filming so 
clearly whatever they're filming in Jordan, Finn is part of that, which is exciting. Yeah, it was Sad Boy Kylo on Twitter. <laughs> Jess. Um, <laughs> Great. I think she must have done like a reverse image search on Google and found where the mosque was and then worked out that it was right next to Wadi Rum. So Oh, cool. So yeah, John's out there filming. Um, because we hadn't heard like any firm details on what actors were involved. But we know yes. for sure that he's there now. But no one exactly. else. Exactly. We'll see if he posts any pictures of Daisy or Kelly or anyone else. Yeah. We need more people to do detective work like that. It's very good. Um, Because he's pretty much the only main cast member who's on social media now, isn't he? So, yeah, it's true. Yeah, give us everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess it gets tricky, though. So the more we know about who's involved in a particular scene, the more people are going to try and piece things together. So I think it's one thing to know John alone is out there. But say, once you know that, like, oh, and Oscar's there, and... Kelly's there and Daisy's there and Adam's there and it's like whoa everyone is there that means it's a huge thing and yeah people spin it out more sure I think it's enough now for me to just know that Finn is likely to be in Jakku again yes just for the the sake of that joke because yeah he doesn't why does everyone want to go back to Jakku <laughs> sorry Finn we knew it was coming like as soon as that joke was made i was like oh obviously they're gonna be coming back to jakku at some point yeah no i'd actually be excited to see that return to jakku to be honest i think there's unfinished business there so that'll be exciting Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right and then the next thing we want to get into is a discussion of the new episodes of resistance specifically the episodes the triple dark and fuel for the fire So, yeah, if you haven't seen these episodes yet, I'd recommend trying to watch them first before hearing us talk about them. But we're going to be talking quite generally, and to be honest, because of the nature of a show like this, there's not huge things to spoil, but I still like to give people some advance warning. Uh, So, yeah, what were your overall thoughts on The Triple Dark, Kirsty? Well, my first thought after watching it again was that I'm getting on board the Kazam ship. Ah, good. Yes, I first mooted that last time, and I know then you were like, ah, I don't have any resistance ships. Well, I, I still don't, to be honest. Because yeah. I, I don't think it's going to be a show that's like about romance. Um, yeah, sure. But I can see why people are into it, and most of it's the name, because Am is a good ship name. It's a very good ship um, name. And yeah, don't also... get me wrong, I'm not writing fan fiction or anything <laughs> for the ship. It's just like, it's a dynamic you can look at, and you're like, yeah, I think they'd be cute together. Yeah, they're kind of giving me Finn and Rose vibes. Yeah. So, Especially very, very early in Last Jedi, Finn Rose vibes. Exactly. So we'll see how that develops over time. But hopefully Tam softens to him and Kaz needs to work for it. Because yeah. <laughs> I think he's hilarious, but I can see why he'd annoy her. Yeah. He's been kind of moronic so far. <laughs> Bless him. He's a good yeah. boy. He is. Like, it's an endearing kind of moronic, but still moronic. I think it's like this really interesting combination they're going for with like fish out of water, but also he's very competent in certain ways when he wants to be. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, it's just kind of fun to see what they're doing with the character because depending on your perspective, you can see Kaz is all over the place. Like, well, how is he so competent at this and so incompetent with this thing? Yeah, I think that is what kind of what they're going for that. Like he's there to be a spy, but also he has these other obligations and how can he learn to meet those and mature and show that he needs to support his teammates as well? 
Yeah. Because they're, they're taking on a great risk. I know that Tam doesn't, doesn't even know, but Yiga certainly does, and it's adding pressure to him. Yeah. So no, hopefully Kaz can come to appreciate that. Yeah. No, you're right. It's not like he's completely incompetent or completely stupid, because if that were the case, it would just be a boring show to watch, to be honest. In some ways, he's very competent and very talented. It's just about him ironing out his weaknesses, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think it's really interesting, the kind of comments that Yiga makes to him about the average person not even knowing about the Resistance, because yeah. it is a bit of a wake-up call to us and Kaz, to be honest. Um, a reminder that this is earlier in the timeline before The Force Awakens kicked everything off. Um, and that, yeah, most people are not really all that aware of what's going on with a potential conflict or war. Yeah. And that, to an extent, Kaz and I, he needs to keep his head down and focus on the work that he's doing, and then the spying will kind of arise as a result of that because he'll be establishing these relationships and trust with the people on the Colossus. Yeah, exactly. He needs to fit in before he can actually get the job done. Yeah, so you can empathise with him wanting to get... like He feels that sense of urgency because he knows what's going on and other people around him don't. Yeah. And he's feeling this pressure to protect Hosni and Prime. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he, he needs to put the work in in other areas first. Exactly. And yeah, there's just really cool little comments that I like. Like, there's a moment where Kaz mentions that he's seen a stormtrooper... And mm. he's like, hmm, I wonder what they look like behind the mask. <laughs> yeah. And I love that because it's like, yeah, that's the question Force Awakens answers. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if we get to a point where Finn, where Kaz is meeting up with the Resistance heroes from the movies, that'd be so cool for him to have a conversation with Finn and be like, wow, man, that's so amazing that you used to be a stormtrooper, but yeah, you're just a dude. And yeah, yeah. I'd love that. I think the fact that Kaz is questioning things like that shows that he is special. Um, yes. Because you wonder if the average person would think about the fact that that's a person under there. That's part of the problem, right? Because Niku is very much like, oh no, I don't want to be anywhere near a stormtrooper, which yeah. you can empathise with. You understand why. They're scary. They're part of the First Order. You don't want to be around them. But Kaz showing that curiosity is like, yeah, we need this kind of... Um, investment and interest because that's what's going to save people exactly yeah is it the quality of a true hero yeah i mean and the whole thing with his trophy and how he breaks it to help someone else stay safe someone who's been really horrible to him yeah oh he's such a good boy (laughs) yeah no he is because Greville was being a little shit to him. <laughs> he and, was horrible. Yeah, he was. But again, that's another thing I appreciate with this show. Because so many kids shows I've seen. And I think kids shows nowadays are generally better with this. But it used to be the case that you'd have that sort of conflict in one episode. And then it would just be completely dropped and never followed up again. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas the premise of much of this episode, or at least a big strand of this episode, was that Greville recognised him as the person who'd caused him trouble before. Um, has it out for him and is therefore trying to make his life pretty hellish for much of this episode yeah and then in the end Kaz obviously saves his life pretty much so I'd like to see that picked up again in a future episode and I think they will so trust the writers I think there's a real story thread going on which is nice yeah because in the moment Greville doesn't really seem to be appreciative at all. He just kind of no. runs off and Kaz is like, oh, thanks, I just ruined my trophy for you and you don't even care. 
Yeah. Um, but you're right. Hopefully that comes back and pays dividends because that's an important lesson too. Mm. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then obviously the main idea of the episode is that the pirates are attempting to raid the Colossus. And again, it's some pretty standard Star Wars stuff in that it reminded me even of what goes on the, in the deleted scene with the village on Act 2, where Luke is trying to teach Ray the lesson about the raiders coming to the island and attacking the villagers, and Ray just wants to protect the villagers, whereas Luke is like, no, no, you can, because you're not going to be here to help them next time, which mm. in that case is a good lesson. But I just liked that you see a similar sort of concept here, so it's just... Sh- it just establishes the fabric of the world quite well in terms of everyone's always living like on the brink of danger at every moment because everyone is out for themselves and there's always raiding parties and people on the lookout to exploit others and stuff. It does and it's quite clever because they, you know, throughout the episode it's, oh, they're pirates, but then at the end suddenly the stakes are raised, you realise that they're in league with the First Order. Yes. And the person who you thought was, well, he was a bad guy and that he was you know, working with them, but he's about to be punished and you feel that flicker of sympathy for him as well because he's a small fish at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. It suddenly feels a lot bigger, the story does. Yeah, and it's interesting to see how the First Order is operating on that way because something like Colossus, like the Colossus, seems very small fry, but clearly that is part of the groundwork of the First Order's plan in terms mm-hmm. of how it's seeking to consolidate its power because it can't just be a top-down thing where it's like, look, we're in charge now, everyone follow us. There have to be like these tang- tangible links that go right down to the roots. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, that very much seems to be what it's about establishing. Yeah, the fact that Phasma is directly involved with that. I mean, I know it's, it's, a, it's a way to have Gwendolyn Christie on the show and Phasma's obviously like a an iconic character at this point that the kids would immediately recognise. But also, yes. it's like, she's kind of a big deal in the First Order, so if she's involved, this is actually quite important. Yeah, exactly. And Gwendolyn Christie killed it with the voice acting. She was really oh, good. Oh, she was so good, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I can't wait for her to come back again, to be honest. Yeah. And then we, we got more of a glimpse of um, the other members of the Ace Squadron, but not much in terms of actual character. It was just kind of, oh, yeah, yeah there's that person, there's Freya. <laughs> yeah, they're just swooping in to save the day, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're going to get more time with them later on, which would be interesting. Um, right, then the next episode is Fuel for the Fire. And that one, just I'll read the synopsis quickly, is Kaz befriends a sky racer named Rucklin who pressures him to take some rare and dangerous hyperfuel hidden in Jaeger's office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my initial impression of this episode, and this will sound so bizarre, but it amused me greatly it reminded me of an old episode of father ted where basically there's this young naive priest who's very easily led and basically this cool rebellious priest comes in called father damien and father damien just basically leads father dougal off from straight and narrow and corrupts him and teaches him how to be like a rebellious teenager and that's basically what happens in this episode because kaz is like a good kid and Rucklin is like this little git who seems all cool and trendy. And he's like, come on, Kaz, come on, come and do bad things with me. <laughs> and yeah, then they go off and they're naughty together, basically. So it's the sort of episode where it's basically moralizing to little children about not falling in for 
peer pressure, I think. Yeah, think for yourself. It's like the sort of lesson that's very important when you're six. Um, but to me, watching it from an adult's perspective, it's just kind of cute and funny in an endearing way. So I like it, but it's also quite silly. Yeah, it was very cute. I mean, I liked Elijah Wood's voice acting. It was very yeah, cool he to was hear good. that voice. Very yeah. recognisable. He was. Um, but yeah, it was just mostly I was just laughing at it because <laughs> it's just funny to watch this stuff as an adult, isn't it? Yes. It it's is. like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, he turned out to be bad. <laughs> shock oh poor Kaz he just wanted to make some friends yeah exactly and they seem so cool man <laughs> <laughs> his his parents bought him the cool shoes I want to be friends with him look they even light up it's amazing <laughs> yeah, yeah no it was adorable but um, my I- favourite part of this uh, episode was more of the Yiga backstory that we got that stuff yeah. really interests me same that was very intriguing like because basically um Kaz and Rucklin they sneak into Jaeger's office and like Kaz takes a moment to look at some photos that Jaeger has and one shows him on the battle of Jakku looking absolutely ecstatic with happiness to be honest given mm. all the bad shit that's gone down <laughs> <laughs> like do you know what I mean though there's literally like ships burning in the background behind them yeah. It's like, there's going to be charred bodies in there, Jaeger. What are you doing, man? Yeah, um, the Battle of Jakku, if you read the Aftermath trilogy, is absolutely brutal. Mm. So, yeah, so it's pretty grim. <laughs> um, and yeah, then they also show a photo of Jaeger with who we can probably only presume are his wife and child. See, it's all really intriguing, isn't it? Yeah. It's just, it's obviously like a little taste of what's hopefully to come, but it's like, yeah, you just want to know more about what happened there and oh, you just feel bad for Jaeger. Yeah. So they also show a little moment later on where Jaeger enters the office and we see him looking at the photos and he looks quite sad. Like, And I think he looks at both photos as well from the rebellion and of his family. Mm-hmm. And yeah, again, I hate to say this, but it does kind of reinforce my conviction that he might well be a spy oh. for the First Order because... Maybe when he looks sad, when he's looking at the photo of the rebellion, it's because he feels guilt. But yeah, that's extrapolation. It pro- probably doesn't mean anything like that, but we will see. Yeah, I know you want me to make a weekly prediction on who's the spy of the week, but I don't think I can. <laughs> you said Jaeger last time. Uh, yeah, but I don't want it to be him. I don't want it to be any of them. Yeah, can of it be Ru- Can it be Rucklin? <laughs> <laughs> That really would be six-year-old logic. That piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) But Kaz saves him because that's what Star Wars is about. Yeah, exactly. And to be honest, Brooklyn is even more of a bastard about it than Gravel was. I know, poor Kaz. (laughs) Brooklyn is literally like right down insulting to him. It's like, oh, what do you do? You ruined everything. Yeah, it's like he just saved your life, you moron. Yeah, whereas like Gravel just runs off. Like it's like okay, you could have thanked him, but at least you didn't insult him to his face. I know. I'm half worried that Kaz is going to be like, okay, I'm going to stop helping people because they obviously don't appreciate it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the moral of the story. It's going to be the story of his fall into darkness. Oh, bless him. Yeah, it's really sad. Oh, <laughs> and what was with that weird, weird alien? I think it's an alien lady, but I'm not sure who's sat at the bar. It's hard to tell, to be honest, isn't it? 
It is hard to tell, yeah. Um, but what is with her? Let's call her her for the sake of argument. Like, inviting cows to come and live with her. It doesn't look very wholesome, Kirsty. It doesn't. I think the implication is that Kaz is a bit of a cutie. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone wants a slice. <laughs> Again, another important lesson for children. Don't go and live in the homes of random old people. Well, he didn't know Jaeger from Adam, to be fair. <laughs> Yeah, but, well, that's true. But like, he's like, okay, Poe, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> he's a I'll, good guy. <laughs> yeah, but like a trusted person introduced them at least. So. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, I was surprised by like how dark that felt. I was like, wow. <laughs> no, I don't think you're supposed to think about it that much. It's just like, oh, <laughs> no, I'm good. <laughs> it's not like child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang creepiness. I just have a vision now of it being like a Bluebeard-esque situation where she's oh, done that God. to like a whole bunch of young men and she just has like a room where she keeps them all. I'm into that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Colossus after dark. <laughs> yes. Rated 18. <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. Um... um also, I just find it really funny to watch Kaz trying to fix things and then every time they just start to explode and emit black smoke. Oh, it's the worst, yeah. And and the way things keep on falling off the edge of the hangar. Oh, yeah, that's done so well. The way that they had the engine like very slowly falling off the side of the platform and then like dropping into the water and they have that wide shot. Yeah. It's just so funny. I just kind of look at it and I'm like, look, guys, if you're going to get him to do this work, you need to get like a partition. You need to get like <laughs> something to block things. Like just anything other than this. Because they must be losing a lot of money. I know, just falling off the side into the water. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty tragic. Oh, dear. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, is there anything else to say on those episodes of Resistance? I don't, I mean, I'm sure there is. I'm sure we've missed plenty of funny things and amazing lines. But just to summarise, we're really enjoying it. Yes. Um, yeah, it's just a lot of fun. And I'm I really think... excited for next week because it feels like that'll be the first proper new episode of Resistance we've got in a long time. Because it is. Yeah. see the first three or four episodes, however you count them, they were all released at once. Mm-hmm. And then it's such a long wait for the next one. Yeah, I think it depends how you're watching it. So I've I've got them coming through on Amazon Prime. So they just oh, release nice. an episode a week, even though I've bought the whole series. Oh, did you get them when they were doing that glitch where it was insanely cheap? Uh, I can't remember, actually. Yes, there was a glitch or something where it was $4 for the whole season, which was a mistake. Oh, was it not meant to be? I think that's what I got it for. Yeah, it wasn't meant to be. It was meant oh, to be nice. $40. <laughs> I did think that was a bit of a steal. Yeah. No, you've nice. got a very good deal. Cool. Yeah, no, so awesome. And yeah, then we're just going to talk a little bit more about Resistance because we actually have synopses for the next bunch of episodes. So what I was thinking of doing is just reading out each one-line synopsis and yeah, then we'll quickly discuss it before moving on to the next one. Right, so the next episode will air on Sunday 28th of October and the synopsis. The First Order arrives at the platform for mysterious reasons, and Kaz and BBA are determined to sneak into the tower to find out what they want. That to me sounds like quite a big episode, mm-hmm. with the First Order actually turning up, so I'm very intrigued. Yeah, so I can't remember what Twitter channel this was on, I think it might have been Disney XD, but they've started showing 
little clips of upcoming episodes. Mm-hmm. And there was one that um, featured Tora's father. Um, I can't remember right. his title, but it's Dozer, right? Um, yeah. And he looked like he was being questioned by the First Order or trying to be manipulated into some kind of decision that would affect the Colossus and I guess where their loyalties lie and whether they'll be working with the First Order. Um, mm. So I guess that might be what was happening and Kaz kind of sneaks in and listens to that conversation. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I can't remember which episode it was. I think it's probably Fuel for the Fire, actually. But one episode ended on the tower and I think you saw Tora's father in it. Right. So that would be a good setup for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they've been kind of making like little nods to it with Niku saying oh it's the best place to live on the Colossus and like just kind of emphasizing that that's the place to be that's where stuff's happening so right yeah yeah that'll be interesting to watch definitely always up for more BB-8 I think little resistance chivy BB-8 is just even more adorable than regular BB-8 yeah no he's the absolute cutest (laughs) (laughs) yeah then on Sunday 4th of November we have the children from Tihar and that is Kaz searches for two missing children for a sizable reward, only to discover the First Order is also hunting for them. Yeah, and this episode guest stars Gwendolyn Christie again as Phasma, so that's exciting. Yeah, I again, this is so intriguing to me. Like, what's your guess as to what's special about these children, Kirsty? I don't know, because I don't know if it's like playing into them with the whole Stormtrooper recruiting program. What, recruiting? I shouldn't mm. even call it that, should I? <laughs> it's just kidnapping. Yeah. Um, but I feel like if, if that's the case, it could have... I mean, they might like have some veiled references to stuff that would impact Finn's backstory or what we would understand of that. Yeah. Um, I doubt it's going to be the case of like more Clone Wars stuff where, oh, they're Force-sensitive, so we need to find them. Right, um, yeah. But, yeah, it could be anything. Yeah. It would feel like quite a big revelation if they were Force-sensitive because obviously the whole point of Rey is that her emergence in the Force is meant to be so significant it's been dormant for so long. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't put it past one of these animated shows to go against that a bit by introducing its own Force-sensitive characters. Yeah, I mean, it could be anything. It could be that they're the children of some important people that the First Order wants to extort, you know? Yeah, so. exactly. Endless possibilities. <laughs> shows they're not very nice people again, like <laughs> hunting children. Oh. Yeah, Captain Phasma isn't a nice person. <laughs> no, she's <laughs> problematic. Really <not>. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag problematic. <laughs> so the episode for Sunday, November 11th is Signal from Sector 6. When out on a routine training exercise, a distress signal sends Kaz and Poe to a damaged ship with strange life forms on board. And obviously that means that Oscar is guest starring again. Yeah, that's interesting to me, routine training exercise. Mm. Because that indicates that Poe is getting Kaz to do something besides spying, I guess? Mm-hmm. Unless it's training in how to be a spy. But who knows? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Again, very intriguing, but we'll obviously have to discuss it when it actually comes out. Yeah, I've been loving Oscar's performance so far in the show, though. Um, and it makes sense for him not to be in every episode, but I look forward to the ones that he is in. Yeah. No, and it's impressive. So they didn't really need to give it anything because it is just an animated series, but they seem to be taking it seriously, which is nice. Mm-hmm. And Sunday, November 18th is Sonara's score. On a mission to repair a vital platform defence, Kaz befriends the mysterious Sonara and comes under attack by pirates. 
Um, Jim Rash and Bobby Moynihan return as Flix and Orca. Love some Flix and Orca. I know. That's very me good. Too. They're so cute. Yeah, they are adorable. Have we met Sonara yet? I don't think so. I mean, if she, he's befriending the mysterious Sonara, that suggests that we don't know about her already, right? Yeah. I can't say oh, much about this, is. but I can say Sonara is a great name. Mm-hmm. It was very good. It makes me think Femme Fatale for some reason. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that will be the ship. Oh. Kazara. That's actually quite a good ship name. Yeah. I think Kaz just goes well, doesn't it, with <laughs> lots of different names. It does. It's very multi-purpose. <laughs> and finally, um, Sunday, November 25th, the Platform Classic. An upcoming race reunites Jaeger with his estranged brother, Marcus, who needs to win to pay off his debt to a criminal organisation. I think that might be the one I'm most looking forward to out of these. Yeah. We're definitely going to get more significant backstory for Jaeger in that. Mm-hmm. Which would be really cool. Hopefully we'll find out something about what happened to his wife and child. Exactly. I feel like through him talking to his brother, there'll be nods to things that have happened before and why Jaeger has ended up where he is and how his brother is in such different circumstances. Yeah, exactly. So it sounds like there's actually going to be quite high stakes in that episode as well, Mm -hmm. which is always welcome. So yeah. Yeah. Lots of resistance going on. (laughs) Yeah. Like, how many episodes are there again? Is it like 22 episodes a season or something? That's what I'd heard, but I can't remember where I saw that. Yeah. It's just amazing to me the sheer number of episodes that American TV series get. It's great. It means there's (laughs) lots of content. But I think in the UK, the standard is like eight or ten episodes or something. Yeah, I think that's becoming more common here with like HBO shows and stuff like that. Um, But for an animated show, yeah, they just seem to be longer running. Yeah, lots of content. Uh, right. And then we can finally move into our Lost Stars discussion, which is a book that Kirsty's been begging me to read since forever, which is why she set it to me as the challenge. And yeah, so I've now finished it and I really, really enjoyed it. It was so good. Um, this discussion, it will be spoilery. We're going to try to avoid going into everything just because we want to leave mysteries like available for people to discover if they choose to listen to the discussion without having read the book which we strongly recommend you do because it's very much worth reading but yeah we won't go into every little nitty-gritty detail but we will go right up to the end in terms of what happens so be prepared yeah i mean you can't go into too much detail really with the whole story because it basically charts the entire length of the original trilogy exactly I think they're born the same year as Luke and Leia. Um, or at least Thane is, because there's that reference to him being born the same year as the Empire. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And there's also that graduation ball where Thane dances with Leia. Like, mm-hmm. I know that doesn't necessarily mean they're the same age, but it makes sense again that they're contemporaries. Yeah. So it's it's just a really cool premise from the beginning to ha- to go through those iconic Star Wars movies that everyone knows, but from this totally different perspective of the people who were actually kind of on the ground in terms of working within the Empire in the Rebellion. Yeah. It's so different from being those, you know, the main heroes. Exactly. And And it's very much about humanising the people who choose to join the Empire as well. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very much rooted in that perspective of Sienna and Fane, when they're these young children and the Empire first comes to their planet and they're just like awed by it and almost everyone around them thinks it's this great thing 
And you kind of read that and you're like, yeah, I guess that probably is sort of how it would go. So I hate to say it, but if you compare it to history and like a lot of the countries and stuff that were occupied by the Nazis, they didn't see it as a bad thing when the Nazis came in. They're like, oh, great. They're going to bring all this like new order and prosperity and it's going to be wonderful, blah, blah, blah. Well, that sort of thing. And it was only as time went by that the deep insidiousness of it revealed itself for many people. So, yeah, I found it was really cool world building in that way. Yeah, I was thinking about when they first meet Tarkin right at the beginning. Yeah. And when he comes to visit their planet and their interactions with him seem such a contrast from obviously Leia's interactions with him in the first movie, but also in Leia, Princess of Alderaan, when he kind of imposes himself on her family home because he's suspecting her family to be involved with the rebellion at that time. Yes. And Sienna is looking at Tarkin and seeing almost a benevolent figure, like obviously strict and representative of the Empire, but to her, that's something that can be perceived as disciplined in this good, strong, honourable way. Yeah. Um, it's only over time that she starts to question things and that causes a great deal of internal grief for her. But because they're children at the beginning and because of the lack of opportunity they have in other ways, especially for Sienna, they can't quite grasp that sinister element. Um, yeah. Some of the things that Tarkin says to, over them, to be honest, he's not even talking to them, he's talking to um, Piet. He says, you see, we should never hesitate to use the lash when necessary, but there are moments when the lure is even more effective because mm. these kids are like jumping at the chance to eventually join the Empire one day and be pilots. They're so excited to see a shuttle. Yeah. So it's really got this sinister element to it, but they can't quite comprehend it yet. Exactly. And yeah, there's also like really interesting stuff. Like you get that scene where they're like helping each other like learn for school and they're learning a history lesson and it's mm-hmm. something about like Mace Windu, like stage yeah. of rebellion or something. Yeah. And I was like, hang on, I don't think that's right. <laughs> yeah. It's it's really sad, isn't it? And scary the way that things can be manipulated that way. Um again, you know, you get these descriptions of benevolent hollows of Palpatine smiling and waving at his subjects and mm. I think we got those details in Leia Princess of Alderaan as well of like his younger face from before he was confronted by Windu and and was altered but yeah it's yeah. just it's just really interesting to see it from these kids perspective yeah and that came back in such a powerful way towards the end as well when Sienna actually sees Palpatine in person uh-huh and then she really sees like how horrifically like deformed and damaged he is and how he radiates this sinister energy and it's just so fascinating to see that illusion crumble for her and yeah it's really effectively done yeah she really does an amazing job with the world building and you know the premise of the social stratification on their home planet and how that has implications for both of their worldviews as they progress through their careers yeah you really feel for sienna with um you know all these things that she set out to devote her life to from the beginning and how she wanted to live for her sister and you know the the cultural values that she has that are now at war with what she's starting to realize the empire stands for and her culpability in that yeah it's so painful like when I was reading it I found for the first hundred or so pages it was a little bit slow for me and certain details felt a bit like oh, 
irrelevant and stuff. I couldn't see why why they were there. But the great thing with the book is that as you read on, you really understand why they were all put there. Mm-hmm. Because there's all these parallels and callbacks to earlier events in the book. And things that might have seemed petty when Sienna and Fane were 15 years old, they suddenly gain all this like depth and importance when they're like 23 years old. And something similar happens that echoes what happened before. And you're like, oh my god, that's actually part of a pattern. And that shows how the Empire is trying to exert control over them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was really cleverly done. So I think it was extremely well stru- it was extremely well structured because everything was there for a reason and served a purpose. So it was really cool like that. Exactly. Like right at the beginning when she's discussing the history of their planet <clears throat> and how they've had these waves of settlers and how each of them have their own cultures and they're kind of at war with each other. And um, the children from the different sectors will bully each other because they have these fundamentally different ways of interacting with their environment and how Mm. they perceive material wealth and that sort of thing. Um, It's a really powerful commentary on like the erasure of culture and the customs in the face of technological innovation, which is something that you got from the original trilogy to start with. Obviously, you have that Luke and Vader man versus machine, right? Yeah. Um, That you then extrapolate to the wider political context but it's just really cool to get that from a different perspective definitely and like it was really powerful to see how when like Fane and Sienna returned to Jellican when it was like late in the war and the Empire had really like clamped down on the planet and how like all traces of both cultures had been erased mm-hmm. so it wasn't just a question of first wave and second wave settlers having their differences and the second wave settlers trying to impose their culture it was a question of both those cultures essentially being wiped out by the empire because it just didn't stand for those expressions of the cultures yeah um, yeah it's a great symbol of how insidious the empire is no, I think that's a really interesting way of, of writing it because at the beginning, obviously, you have these very distinctive class and cultural divides between Thane and Sienna, which is mm. obviously a riff on you know that classic Romeo and Juliet dynamic that we've seen in a million different young adult um, books. But um, as you say, over time, those differences become erased and it's it's through their connection as human beings, obviously, but also the fact that the Empire just kind of bulldozes through it all it doesn't mm. value any of it. Yeah. Uh, it shows how those differences should be overcome by people anyway, because ultimately in the face of something evil as like the Empire, it doesn't actually differentiate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. It shows what is everyone's cause to fight against it, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what did we make of our two leads than Fane and Sienna. Like, I, I'm not asking you to pick favourites, by the way. That would be cruel and ridiculous. <laughs> no, I love them so much. Yeah. I just love, so I mean, good. the romance, obviously. Um, I love it. That's my jam. It's like friends to lovers to enemies to lovers. <laughs> yes. It's <laughs> messy. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, from the beginning, from chapter one, there are these, like, clear, awkward moments that kind of foreshadow the inevitable romance that you know is coming. Because you get, like, Fane's brother being pretty gross and misogynistic, to be honest, making fun of him for hanging out with Sienna, and all there can only be one reason for that. Yeah. Um, But then it causes Sane to start examining how he does think of Sienna and, like, looking at her in a different way. And then 
she starts thinking about how maybe they'll they could fall in love one day but she almost feels like they're too close sometimes she felt that they were two parts of the same person mm. it's like come on girl <laughs> yeah and then she's um trying to kid herself into thinking that she's making these objective observations that Thane is handsome. (laughs) It's just very cute. That was adorable. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because the actual romance between them developed at the Academy. Mm -hmm. And that was such an interesting way to handle it because obviously the whole idea of the Academy is very much like none of that sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, it was very much the romance emerging despite those barriers and yeah, the whole way through is just such like classic Romeo and Juliet, star-crossed, like both coming at it from opposite sides. It's like that's their, like in the world building of their home planet with Sienna being a first waver and Fane being a second waver. Um, and yeah, but the whole point of it is that those differences that should affect them, they're never really relevant to them because there's that personal connection to them, between them that's so much more important. Yeah, I mean, you get those pretty harrowing passages about how both their parents hate the other child and hate the thought of them hanging out with each other. Mm. Um, there's this part where Fane is thinking about how the few times they'd met, his family had treated Sienna so rudely that it had made him almost sick with shame. Mm. Um, yeah, and and I think it's... I'd forgotten this, but when I was rereading it, I was shocked... I feel like there almost should have been like a trigger warning for how abusive Thane's uh, father is toward him. Yeah. It was really, really difficult to read. Yeah. No, it's very visceral. So it wasn't just like spanking or something like that. It was literally beating him up, Mm -hmm. like punching him. And yeah, it was just very violent and OTT. The only criticism I have of that is that I didn't feel like we ever saw his father get his just desserts. Of course, that makes sense because it doesn't always happen that way in life, you know? Like, people don't always get punished for the horrible shit they do. But just, like, on a visceral level, I really wanted to see him suffer for what he did to his child. Yeah, I think it was quite a powerful way to show that even though there were all these, you know, like, I think from the very first page... um, Thane's mum calls Sienna's community Valley Trash or something like that. Mm. So there's clearly this like class snobbery going on and that they're much more wealthy. Um, but it just kind of gave us this notion that while Thane might be materially well off um, and privileged in that sense, his childhood has been difficult in different ways from Sienna's. Yeah, no, exactly, which is good. So I think it would have been easy to do like, oh, it's the snobby rich boy, he has everything he ever wanted. And then it's the poor village girl and she's so naive and primitive and stuff. You know, there's those horrible stereotypes you can resort to about both sides. Mm -hmm. And Claudia Gray absolutely did not do that. They were both very much fleshed out and everyone felt real and there were flawed people on both sides. And yeah, it was really well done. Um, with Fane, I really liked how they portrayed his shift in perspective as well. And of mm-hmm. course, it's all about com- contrasting that with Sienna's, Sienna's perspective. So, for example, you see this core event from the original trilogy, like the destruction of Alderaan, mm-hmm. and then just reading about how those characters processed that and dealt with that. That was so interesting to me. Yeah, I found 
both of them incredibly relatable, to be honest, because on the one side you have Thane's cynicism and almost apathy to an extent, contrasting with Sienna's like real devotion to her honour at, mm. at, at so much cost. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you can f- find both of them relatable in different ways. Because yeah. Thane, like, he really... There's that level of, like, almost just giving up in the face of such despair, you know? Like, yeah. I can't afford to be emotionally invested in these things. Yeah. And again, it's so well done, so that's rooted in the cultures they come from and their childhoods. Yeah. Because Sienna's culture that her parents raised her in was so much about honour and loyalty and like those sorts of qualities. So then as a grown-up, when she's serving the Empire, those are still of primary concern to her in terms of the things that she values and wants to enact as part of her service. Whereas Fane just doesn't have that. He's very much always had to like just try and survive and endure the abuse so he can then escape from it. So his reaction in terms of when he really gets wind of how evil the Empire is, which is to desert, then that makes complete sense in relation to that. Because, yeah, he's going to bail. And you completely understand why he does. This is not even framed like a noble decision. So in another book, it would have been like, oh, I've seen the evils of the Empire, so I'm immediately going to join the rebellion. It wasn't that. He goes off for like half a year and is just like working as part of like a general crew because he happens to be a good pilot and it's only later that he actually gets recruited by the rebellion and again I liked it it's just it felt much more natural and realistic as much as anything in the Star Wars world is going to feel realistic yeah he almost at that point reminds me of like an AU version of Finn Mm. Um, because Finn obviously leaves the First Order and his aim is just to get away um and it's only over time that he comes to believe in the resistance's cause. But at first, it's, you know, mostly about, yes, this is a wrong thing and I don't want to be involved in it, but also self-preservation, which is totally understandable. Yeah. So it's really wonderful to see those arcs and things. You know, it's similar to an extent, but obviously he's still his own distinct character. Yeah, totally. And yeah, with um, Sienna, it was really... I, I loved seeing those desperate rationalizations she had to make mm. up at every turn because obviously her interpretation of Alderon is that okay this is awful this makes me feel sick to my stomach but this is the empire using it as like a last resort to end the war and then as the war continues then it's the rebellion that's evil for continuing to fight in the face of yeah. this rather than it being the empire's fault so she very much perceives it it's like the Hiroshima justification, basically. It's like, yeah, this is a terrible, horrendous thing, but we need to do this to end the conflict. And, yeah. So all those frightening real-world echoes, basically, because it gets into some very real mentalities in terms of how people can justify war crimes to themselves and make sense of them. Yeah, you can really feel her desperation to kind of keep denying things to herself. Um, yeah. She- Sienna is such an interesting character because you don't get an awful lot of characters, especially female characters and characters of colour as well, who are allowed to be that morally ambiguous. Yeah. Because you know that Sienna's a good person, but having to wrestle with those kinds of things is just... Oh, it's, it's difficult to read at times. Yeah, it really is. Like, for me, it was so painful to read about the whole incident where her mother is sent to prison 
yeah. for what are clearly like false charges and how Sienna has to endure that and she basically has to ultimately take the Empire's side against her mother. Mm-hmm. I know that she's supportive towards her parents like when she goes there in person but when she goes back she has to basically be like yeah my mum's a traitor I accept mm-hmm. it that sort of thing and it's like wow this is so messed up yeah I don't know if I'm wildly off base here but sometimes Sienna kind of reminds me of Kira mm. um, obviously it's a different archetype she's not a femme fatale or anything yeah but and and we get much more insight into her internal monologue but it's just that element of like okay I'm in a kind of shitty situation here <laughs> But yeah. I'm kind of try and do my best. Um, yeah, Kira seems to come from a more selfish standpoint. She's just mostly for survival. But it's just the idea of these people being in such difficult situations and trying to be okay with things as they're happening around them. Yeah. Um, and just that level of sadness. Definitely. Um. Yeah, then I think, obviously because it transitions well from the fact that we've been talking about the characters, I'd like to talk a bit more in a focused way about the romance between them. Um, And yeah, so we've already mentioned that there's the early stuff going on between them at the Academy when that relationship is first blooming. There's one relationship I particularly love where I think it's Fane going off on a transport and Sienna kisses him just before it leaves. And everyone's like, um, woof whistling, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, just to imagine people doing that in the context of the Empire, like on a Star Destroyer, that's bonkers. But I love it. (laughs) Yeah, it's cute. It was very cute. I didn't get to this point in my reread, but I do remember there being like a good fade to black scene. Was it back when they were in the fortress, as they called it? Yes, I think that's where they first mid-live, so to speak. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, and again, it was very tasteful, but, and it felt right, you know, like I think, obviously it's for young adults, so they wouldn't go into like an explicit sex scene, Um, but it felt very appropriate, and it was still like sensual and sexy without being like in your face, Mm -hmm. you know, and yeah, you're left in no doubts about what's gone on between them, and (laughs) Yeah, no, and it was just so nice because, yeah, like those reunions that they have after they've separated and after they're realising that they're both on paths that the other person can't follow, it's so, like, touching to read because they care for each other so deeply and basically every time they reunite in that context, it always starts off from the perspective of oh I'm so angry with you why are you doing this I hate Mm -hmm. that you've gone this way but then they ultimately end up having sex (laughs) (laughs) so much angst exactly it's super angsty but Claudia Gray does it so well she lives for the angst (laughs) but yeah and I think it was really effective in showing how people even as they're being driven further and further apart ideologically they can still hold on to those feelings and they can be just as intense and true as they ever were because the love between Sienna and Fane is never diminished despite how they're drawn further and further apart Like, and the way it culminates towards the end of the book when you obviously get to them and they're both on the same Star Destroyer and Sienna is like on the brink of 
basically taking it out and taking herself out. But then when she sees Fane is there, like, everything changes. And then suddenly the priority has to be, oh, crap, how do I do this while still keeping Fane alive? Mm-hmm. Whereas for Fane, the whole idea is, screw the Star Destroyer. I don't care what happens with it as long as Sienna survives. Yeah. <laughs> so they literally have to, like, beat the shit out of each other <laughs> <laughs> to... Yeah, until one of them subdued, and then whoever subdued is the winner. And yeah, luckily Fane subdues Sienna, <laughs> and so they both survive. Uh, yeah, spoiler. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like it was such like a weird scene in so many ways. But it was also like the only answer I think to that situation. So it was so ridiculous in so many ways. It's like, look, you love each other, you fools. Just accept it and run away together. But again, it underlines how the fact that even though they love each other, it's not that straightforward. And the love won't stop either of them also following their loyalties that go beyond that relationship. Because right to the very end, Sienna is still extremely loyal to the Empire. Mm. Sounds like a few parallels to be made with the sequel trilogy. I know, right? <laughs> Seriously, when there's that Raylo novel, I need Claudia Gray to write it. <laughs> so much. It's like, honestly, n- no disrespect to people like um, Alan Dean Foster and Jason Fry. And I do think, well, maybe Alan Dean Foster, not so much. But Jason Fry did a good job with the Ray and Kylo stuff. But I don't know, I think there's something that a female writer can really bring to it, to be honest, in terms of nailing that emotion. And like writing about that connection and the feelings that exist between like two people that I'm not sure like Jason Fry could manage. And again, that's unfair because in writing the novelization, someone like Jason Fry was obviously had his hands tied behind his back because he wasn't allowed to talk about certain things. He wasn't allowed to go in depth about certain scenes and stuff. But still, in some ways, it was quite a cold depiction. And Claudia Gray's depictions of like emotional scenes and relationships that anything but sorry, I know I'm rambling, but does that make sense? It does make sense. I'm just really hesitant to compare the novelizations that have to really tread very carefully with something like this that is about brand new characters. She can go wherever she wants. Yeah. Um, there's nothing to kind of hold back on. Mm. Um so I get what you're saying, but I think say if Jason Fry was to write the nine novelization there was nothing that had to be left on the table I think it would be more emotionally satisfying because he's spoken about how he wasn't able to go into certain things and he like he, he'd read the script but there was lots that he wasn't able to refer to in terms of like the internal motivations and stuff because it's mysterious and intentionally at that point yes um, so I see what you're saying I think Claudia Gray's a great writer and I'd love for her to write more stuff for Star Wars but yeah. Yes, just to be clear, I do think that men can write emotions. <laughs> men can definitely write emotional stuff. It's just that out of all the Star Wars novels I've read, Claudia Gray definitely does it best. So uh, yeah. yeah, all I'm saying is maybe, well, this is a female writer too, but if you get time sometime soon, maybe give Dark Disciple a go because that's another mm. great one for emotional roller coasters. Yeah, do you need prior awareness of the characters? Is about. I don't think so. Like, I'd I'd watch some of the Clone Wars at that point, but I don't think you really need it. You can, you can follow it on its own terms. Okay, awesome. Yeah, have you got any other thoughts on how the romance is handled in particular? 
Um, not really in specifics because I didn't have time to go over that stuff again. I just remember really, really enjoying it. Yeah, like that was the romance. Really, was why I'd wanted you to read it for so long because it did remind me a lot of why we're invested in the sequel trilogy and those kind of dynamics and tropes. Yeah. Um, and I'm just kind of champing at the bit still <laughs> a few years later for a sequel because I really want to know what happened to these characters. Yeah, same. Yeah, like it's so um. Like, it ends on such a great cliffhanger because Sienna is in prison and she's very much, like, defeatist. She's like, look, they're going to see me as a war criminal. I'm never going to get out of here. Whereas Fane is like, look, we need people like you. Don't worry about it. You're going to be out pretty soon. Um, and I'm inclined to believe Fane's perspective, especially as we know that the rebellion is relatively benevolent. So, yeah, I don't see Sienna being locked up for a long time. I think the question is how would she cope in the New Republic and what role would she serve in that? There's also the question of what role Fane would serve, but for him it's a bit less complicated because he was already on the right side before the conflict ended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so, mean, yeah. you could take it in a really unexpected direction and somehow have Sienna linked with the First Order. Yeah. It's hard to say, isn't it? Because with like the politics that comes out around um, Bloodline, before that, there's this kind of real optimism that things will be substantially changed and they won't repeat the mistakes of the past. But yeah. in that time frame, there's a lot of politicians that are feeling like, oh, maybe that wouldn't be so bad or, or we miss the glory of the Empire. Yeah. Um, exactly so or remember it, the good old days <laughs> yeah so it would be interesting to see where Sienna and Thane are at in that moment yeah definitely there's also a character we haven't mentioned yet called Nash Windrider and he's another interesting character he's from Alderaan and he was basically a classmate of Thane and Sienna at the academy and that he has an interesting reaction to the destruction of Alderaan in oh that god it's horrible it's really really horrible it basically makes him dead inside and ultimately he becomes one of the most like hardcore and dedicated members of the Empire. And yeah, it's painful to read because he's pretty like died in the wall like bad by the end of it. But with his backstory, he's the sort of character you'd expect to see become the hero pretty much. Yeah, so, he's an interesting foil to Leia, I found. Yeah. Exactly. It would have been so easy for Leia to let that bitterness and sadness consume her. Yeah, no, you're right. They're like parallel characters, really. And yeah, an interesting thing with Nash is that he had a big crush on Sienna. And he basically like said, look, do you want to be together? And she was like, no, because she was not over Fane and she would never be over Fane. Even though Nash like basically asked her out after Fane had defected. Um... And yeah, so at the end of the book, Nash basically gives Sienna, who he thinks is dead, like the highest honour in the Empire. So he clearly reveres her as this hero. So then what would happen if those two characters met up again? Like, would Nash all be about trying to bring her into the First Order? Or would he be about trying to kill her because he wants her to stay dead so she can remain this, like, icon to the former Empire? Because... If she's like renowned as this hero of the Empire and then it's revealed, oh, actually, she survived and now she's serving the New Republic, that would be like a disaster in like PR mm. terms for the First Order. 
or at least a nascent First Order, because Sienna's the sort of person that the new First Order would be looking up to as this is the model of what we want to be like. And yeah, then if she impinges on that, then it would be in someone like Nash's interests to kill her. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you see, there's so many seeds for potential storylines. It's really interesting. Yeah, I was kind of hoping that at this point we'd have already heard about a sequel being in the works, but we know that there are other projects that Claudia was asked to work on. Yes. So who knows if we'll get that or if it would be her writing it, they could always give it to someone else. Yeah. But I would like it for it to be her. Exactly. I kind of also wonder if it might be because there's potential for crossed wires with the Mandalorian because mm. we know that takes place like about three years after Return of the Jedi, something like that. Yeah. So that would be approximately the same time that you'd be looking at for a Lost Stars sequel. That's so true. maybe they want to allow something like the Mandalorian to establish this is what the political scene looks like at that time. And then it will open up the way for things like a Lost Stars sequel. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, neither of these characters were mentioned in the Aftermath trilogy, as far as I can recall. Mm. Um, and then there's all like the the mystery of what happens to Rey Sloan after she basically decides to go off to the Unknown Regions and presumably start the First Order. Yes. Um, so there are just so many characters. So there's all these like little threads and you just... I don't know. It's it's funny because with the films, there's so much going on, but you don't really have this perception of how vast the Empire is. Yeah. And how there'll be all these characters that don't really know each other or may have met one time, but yeah. It's just a lot more going on under the surface. Definitely. There's so much good stuff. And yeah, like the way things end between Sienna and Fane, like in terms of their relationship is also intriguing because I think there's a sense of some trust being broken because Sienna's angry with Fane because she yeah. feels like he disrespected her pretty much by refusing to listen to her wishes because she actively wanted to die and she was perfectly resolved to do that and she was happy to die and she's kind of like, you robbed me of that so I'm pissed. Which you can understand. Again, as a reader you like her so you're very glad that he did that and you don't want her to die. But because the film is so much about perspective and empathy, you can totally get inside her head and understand why she would feel that way and feel hurt. So I'm not sure that's necessarily going to be an easy thing to heal. There's going to be work that needs to be done in order for them to feel comfortable with each other again. Yeah, that's the thing. You don't get the happy ever after. So it doesn't feel like the end to their story. Yeah, I think that's the note that it leaves you on. It's like, oh, I love that ending, but now I want more. <laughs> exactly. It's not the white picket fence ending. <laughs> Which so yeah, I'm glad you really enjoyed up. it. Yeah, no, I was really glad to read it. It was so much fun. I loved it. Like Now I'm thinking about future challenges, though. I know you've still got Mad Woman in the attic. Um, and I think we should wait until you finish that before we set any other challenges, really. Um, because yeah what we've decided is that we both want to read the same thing or watch the same thing so then we can have a mutual discussion about it rather than us both reading separate things and then it becomes more complicated so yeah I was thinking about potentially getting us both to read The Secret History of Souls at some point have you heard of that book? Uh, I might have heard of it who's it by? Um, 
the author's name escapes me. It's a non-fiction book and it's really interesting. It's basically all about the script development of Star Wars. It focuses mainly on the original trilogy, but it does also go into the prequels. And it's just such a fascinating insight into the extent to which all those stories changed and evolved as they went along. Okay. And there's just lots of myth busting, basically. Well, okay, yeah. So I am interested in that. I've just Googled it. It's by Michael Kaminsky. Are there any closing thoughts you want to say about Lost Stars? Um, I don't think so. I mean, if people listen to this, chances are they've already read it. Um, if you didn't, sorry, we've spoiled you. But <laughs> I would still recommend giving it a go because it's my favourite Star Wars book so far. Um, yeah, and if, if you're like us, if you love those angsty romances, then it's perfect for that. And it's just a really great alternative perspective on the original trilogy. Yeah, exactly. It's like seeing it with whole new eyes. It's really well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, great. Um, right, then to close off the show, I'm Rachel, and you can find me at Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr and at Journal of the Star Wars on WordPress. Where could people find you, Kirsty? I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, bye! Bye! <laughs>